0: Hey
1: Daniel, how's it going? Hey Evan, feels like it's been a long time since we've been on the podcast together. Um, I know the last time that we we uh, recorded, I didn't have a little puppy dog at my feet. I think she's had three accidents so far today, so praying another one does not happen during today's session. How about you? How are you doing?
0: I'm doing all right. I'm glad it's a Friday. We always record on Fridays for some reason, but it's nice that it's a Friday. Uh, things are good. Um, wrapping up the week looking forward to next week a little bit of work travel but not much and yeah um if you need to run really quick uh run (laughs) nobody wants an accident (laughs) so should be a good episode though uh and we're coming back from a holiday break too so this is our first episode of season three uh and I guess we figured in due form, uh, our guests today, they started off episode, uh, season two, episode one with us. So we'll just bring them back for the first episode of season three. Um, and thanks listeners for hanging in there during the January short break that we took, uh, this last um, month. So what are we calling today's episode, Evan? Ooh. Uh, well, we're going to talk about startups and leveraging data. We'll see what the actual title kind of shakes out uh, here. We're going to try some new uh, AI that's going to help us uh, start to offer um, uh, all of our um, podcasts. And we're going to start to transcribe them so that you can get the transcripts. And um, it also helps us put together a little bit uh unique titles uh so um we're a little excited to try out some new technology ourselves for the podcast sounds good we talk about tech all the time i'll introduce our first guest today
1: uh so if you're if you already know what season two episode one was uh we have our friends back from claim claim capital and so our first guest is a former epic employee with the claims and remittance team. Uh, really focused on data analysis and automation and is the chief executive officer and founder of Claim
0: Capital. Um, so welcome back, Austin. Thanks for being here.
2: Great to be back. Thank you for having us on.
0: Well, and I guess our second guest doesn't need a whole lot of introduction either, uh, but also former Epic, uh, Claiming Room ends, um, the director of client uh, operations at Claim Capital. Um, welcome back, Spencer.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here for the new season anniversary.
0: All right. Uh, well, we're excited to have you both back.
1: And for today's episode, we're going to take a little bit different spin than we did in season two, and where we learned about what you're doing. And we want to start out today's uh, segment talking about what it's like creating a startup uh, and specifically in the, the healthcare space. Like, what has that experience been like for you all? Austin, I don't know if you want to start us out. Sure.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting industry, not just healthcare, but also tying that into technology. Uh, healthcare itself is obviously a massive industry. You've got trillions of dollars of transactions going forth every year. And then the actual data behind it and the IT infrastructure, there's just a lot of complexity. So it's it's interesting because you're not selling a product to an individual buyer. Your market, are, it's going to be these giant multi-billion dollar organizations Uh, So it adds kind of a lot of red tape, long sales processes, but it's been very interesting.
1: And I know, like, just even thinking about I I live next to two health systems, and they're they're merging right now. And it's like, uh, or I think a press release came out like a week ago that they're merging. It's like, what does that space look like when you're competing for clients when the your client list is going to be changing all the time? That's, that's got to be uh a bit of a challenge what was it like for you all like thinking about okay i have this idea i want to sit down and make this um thinking about the regulation in the space the need to protect data like what what were some of like the first steps where you're like putting this together and you're like maybe this could be something
2: yeah a lot of that was more or less learn as you go, right? It started as the idea whenever I was at Epic, just seeing all of these gaps in the analytic capability around just such massive issues like denials, where, I mean, organizations will get billions of dollars in denials per year. And then having that just be kind of grouped together in slicer dicer or a pivot table, it just was still leading to all of these holes. Uh, And so that was kind of my process is, I had a background in statistics. I was studying to be an actuary. I would gotten into programming in college. And so as I was seeing these gaps, I figured that we'd take a stab at uh, trying to do things a little bit better. And then, you know, we obviously go through a lot of the kind of healthcare training. You get a lot of exposure to that at Epic. And obviously with that industry, you have all these regulations, right? The, you know, crucial importance of protecting PHI and being sensitive with data, everything like that. And so uh, it's it was definitely a learning experience, but we had, you know, kind of a long window where we were starting the company, starting to build out the product, doing the development, where we were able to keep all the other avenues of working in healthcare going by getting all the cybersecurity insurance and the contracting and the AWS infrastructure and bringing in all of these, you know, cybersecurity professionals to make sure that we are living up to the standards that are needed for this kind
0: of data. So taking a little bit of different spin. So now you're up and running. So what does that look like for a, a new startup within like that 24 month period? What are some of those targets and goals that you guys were like, hey, we have to achieve these elements to be able to feel like we're successfully moving us forward as a group?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest differentiator there is whether the startup goes kind of the venture capital route or whether they're going, you know, kind of organic and homegrown. Where if you're getting you know, VC funding and you're trying to go fast and loud and you're raising millions of dollars to hire a team of a dozen engineers and salespeople, a dedicated marketing team, at that point, your timeline shifts because you have so much on the, uh, on the outsets of your startup that, uh, that you can scale things a lot faster. And so we've kept things organic and you know, kind of homegrown In the sense that we didn't want to go that route and give up all of that equity and we were fine kind of taking our time with uh, making sure that the product was being done right and then building it out, you know, on our own timeline. So for us, I mean, the first thing for any group is to get a minimum viable product uh, if you're going to be delivering software or a software backed uh, product and so. That I think changes depending on your development capacity, but you know, six months to a year, I think is when you really want to start actually making sure that your product is doing what you want it to. And then from there, it's really about getting clients and it's, you know, you're not going to walk up to one of the largest healthcare systems in the country, and that's going to be your first client. Most of the time, they're going to want you to have proof of concept. They're going to want to see demos and your product. And so what we did is we took, you know, small steps getting larger and larger clients and Spencer can expand on that piece too. Uh, But I think in that two year window is when you really want to start seeing that
3: proof of concept. Yeah. The, um, the, the measurement for success changed dramatically over the, over the years here, you know, talk um, first couple of months or the, that first 12 months of of us working, it was a lot of um, me picking up the phone and calling groups that I thought might be interested. You know, it was a lot of, cold calling and just trying to get in touch with somebody. And, you know, what we, what I would consider a success was just getting a response in the first place. You know, it was just like, Oh, this person responded. And then we get our first clients and now we've, you know, established more of that MVP or, you know, we were able to actually get our hands on some data, start working on some stuff. And then that measure of success changes. Now we're having successful actual client um, engagements, you know, we're actually delivering good results that are producing, um, positive change in these organizations and having successful sales pitches. So yeah, it's a lot of, there's a lot of nitty gritty work to start with a lot of picking up the phone and a lot of manual stuff. And, you know, that's changed over time.
2: Yeah. And one, uh, in order to even get that started, we just started offering our services for free. We had the, (laughs) we had the MVP we are ready to start doing some of the analysis and just in order to get any amount of real data in there, uh, we were just calling groups and saying, look, uh, if you give us the opportunity, we'll do all of this for free. Uh, we really just want an opportunity to prove ourselves, to build up a network, to improve our products. And in order to do that, you need real life data. So that was uh, kind of our approach of just starting to build up a client base just by offering for free services. And then after they saw what we could do and we made the product better, then we were able to roll that into actual paid contracts with some of those organizations and then start going to larger and larger, uh, groups.
3: Yeah. It's, it's always very like nostalgic in a sense to look back on like our first pitch decks that we made or our first like outputs we created with like our, um, you know, with, a uh, are those, those small clients, those, uh, local organizations we were able to work with. And then comparing that to now when it's like, yeah, we've, uh, we've, we've come a, a bit of a long way so far and still lots to go.
0: Now that you guys are in with, uh, uh, several clients, I- how is that? Were like, how are you guys able to start to leverage those relationships to be able to expand? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm sure neither one of you in college were like, "Hey, I'm gonna go be a venture capitalist and start up my own company and and move forward." It, you know, I mean, we all had different trajectories that got us here, but like, how are you guys trying to leverage those current relationships to really grow and expand so that you know? I know with your guys' solution, we'll get in a little bit later in another segment about what you guys are doing, but you definitely are probably gauging and being able to leverage other people's information to help other, uh, other um, potential health systems as well.
2: Yeah, that's a huge component of it. And I think making sure that you have a strong relationship with each client where you're not just behind a curtain and providing a product, you are working with them, both in the sense to help them and have them help you and that you're going to learn so much from each group each group is going to have kind of their own nuance and issues and requests. And so really partnering with them to hear more about that and then improve our product to address that. It also helps us the next time we get a different client and they have their own issues or they have their own requests Uh, because, you know, some items can be standardized that you can approach the same way for any given organization, but then you have all of the things that impact that, like what is their, EHR how is that EHR configured what functionality are they using what is their payer mix and how are those payers doing things differently than the other ones so there's a lot of nuance there but by having that relationship with the client you can really get good feedback on you know what what would bring them value and what can you do in your product
3: to improve that yeah i think we we probably hit on that even a little bit the beginning of last of last season's episode but yeah a big component of us has always been that collaborative nature where time allows you know um like we we want to be meeting with your SMEs, we want to be looking at the data through the lens of your organization and we don't just want to hand you output and then say all right good luck you can untangle this you know we want to decipher that ourselves with you we know with our um our own analytics and our perspectives and our um, consultants who are looking at these things um we want to be able to provide pointed recommendations that are actually gonna you know you don't have to do all the work yourself. We're gonna guide guide you along that path.
1: I know you mentioned earlier that I mean, starting out, you're making maybe some cold calls to try to get clients and thinking about it now in the future. The AI markets a little, little, I don't want to say on edge, but it's uh there's been an uh implosion of sorts, at least with certain certain names out there. And I'm curious uh what y'all's reaction is to that or how marketing has been, just when when clients hear about AI or potential clients hear. AI as a solution, uh, how that how that interaction goes
3: for you? Yeah, definitely. It's a really good question from kind of an industry perspective because people see, uh, you know, we hear, we get the Becker's articles, you know, we're we're seeing all the stuff going on, and uh, we're seeing these very large giants of organizations going under, or you know, making layoffs, huge changes like this. Um, and you might raise an eyebrow and say, "Well, is this stuff slowing down, or what's going on?" Um, I think if anything, it shows. The inverse, you know, there was enough demand that this company couldn't f- fulfill all of the the needs they needed to. And they, you know, unfortunately had to make some adjustments, which to us says we're still on the right track because we are providing these things what we consider to be the right way. You know, the market is still there. We still need technological solutions to the issue of, you know, denials management specifically. Um, it's just more so the the tech that you go across, you know, go about that because it's it's understandable that people um, are wary about this. Not only is it a a new technology, it's something that's developing very rapidly, which alone is going to make someone hesitant. But then you do see, you know, these shifts in the the industry as well. So I think it just comes down to the, um, and, you know, also you can speak a little bit to this as well, kind of with how we handle our sales calls in the first place. But we like to be as forthcoming as possible to show that, you know, we're not keeping a lot of technology behind the curtain. We're not trying to Hide things from you. We we want you to know how your data is being used, so that you feel comfortable with the technology that we are applying to it. You know.
2: Yeah, I think a large part of it is also kind of biting off more than you can chew, or trying to branch out too too quickly into too many different avenues. I think the the implosion that we're talking about with the company that shall not be named. I think there's different. Uh, there's so many different issues that um, that organizations try to go after at one time. And especially if you're, you know, venture backed with hundreds of millions of dollars at that point, there's this expectation and this time pressure that you need to live up to it. And then seeing how organizations try to address all of those issues, it's difficult to build out that much functionality, no matter how large your development team is, if you're trying to go a hundred different directions, right? If you're trying to be a clearinghouse and do prior offs and do denials management and utilization management, all these issues that get people excited because they're prevalent in healthcare. But whenever you try to address all those at one time, and especially through things like acquiring other companies who might be specialized in some of those areas, you're trying to add pieces to a puzzle from entirely different puzzles. And those often don't fit well together, or if they do, it doesn't look very pretty. And I think that's kind of one of the risks of trying to do too much too soon and not building it out organically where you know what's going to work with the rest of your code base and your product and where your strengths are.
0: How do you guys manage that, you know, like that, that slow growth to organic growth, but also trying to stay ahead of, you know, the EMR systems that might be looking at the same t- similar types of solutions of what you're building out to make sure that you're ahead of the market in that regards um, versus, you know, being reactive and then coming in with a similar type of product or solution like how did you guys think that through as you were getting ready to launch of you know we got to get a client we got to do this slowly but at the same time how do we stay ahead of everybody else
2: i think that comes down to uh, i think something that's worked really well with our group is just our communication with our development team to set the expectations and kind of the limitations of what what do we feel comfortable taking on right now Because if we stay specialized and we do the best that we can on what we know that we can do, then that's going to help us stay ahead. You know, An organization that throws 100 developers at something, they might be able to get a lot of stuff done quickly, but you're still pressing up against knowing whether or not it's going to work. You're going to have a lot of different hands, a lot of different cooks in the kitchen, and you're not going to know if it's actually going to come together. And so that's something that You know, most of our development team is either x epic or has revenue cycle background. And so being able to sit down and the actual development team knows the requirements of what we're doing, and they know how it all works. That has been invaluable to still being able to go quickly. Uh, even whenever we're a lean team,
1: I feel like with the venture capital as well. And when you throw all these developers at something, you almost get a little bit of an Elizabeth Holmes situation where you promise something before it actually works, or it's actually like available (laughs) and, uh, you maybe sell something to a client that never actually is possible. But, um, what is something that as you're having conversations and you think about like specialization of a product that, um, without sharing like too many secrets about like conversations that are going on but I'm curious like what do you, where, where do you see clients like trying to push you all towards or things that you all are interested in maybe branching out on and I know we'll talk a little bit more about it later about what what claim capital is doing at the moment but just like what's coming up in conversations what are some hot topics out there
2: yeah I think one of the biggest things is, uh, denials continue to increase and I think it's around the concept of what can be prevented versus what are we just going to accept The fact that this is going to be a first pass denial, right? This, some of these are going to go out and get denied. And so at that point, it's a matter of now what, how are we working these? How manual is that process? How are we reducing the noise between what can and what should be worked and what we should maybe write off because you're not actually going to be able to recover that or at least not efficiently. And so one of the biggest projects that we've done recently is in the space of kind of appeals efficacy. So instead of just analyzing, you know, kind of isolated claims to see the differences between them that's leading to denials, we string together series of claims, so we factor in where are we rebilling claims and where are we seeing appeals and kind of factoring in the entire history of a set of charges in order to help guide and influence what should happen if this does get denied, right? If we only have a 10% success rate appealing a specific denial to Aetna, And that's causing other denials that have a 90% success rate to Blue Cross to go past timely filing. That's a gap in priority because we should be focusing on the work that's going to bring in the most money. And so that's been one of our largest efforts. And I think where we're seeing a lot of interest in our clients is in that space of saying, you know, what's happening after I get this
0: denial that we can't really prevent. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
4: There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance.
0: And we're back. All
1: right, uh, so we're going to jump into our debate section. Uh, I think we have some some fun topics. Just talking about what what our what our friends here are doing with data and analytics and driving results to clients. Evan, you want to start us out? Oh, I
0: guess uh, sure. <laughs> So, uh, let's talk about uh, like, what have you guys been doing? Like we, we know what your product does. It's really around, you know, assisting in the denial prevention. And for the listeners, I definitely highly recommend you guys going back and listening to season two, episode one, um, and then come back and listen to this one. But Tell us about like, where are you guys finding some of the quick wins with your clients so far that were able to prove your guys a success to be able to move forward with, you know, establishing new relationships with, um, I think, as Spencer tells us, the logo, new logos on your platform. So
2: yeah, apart from that appeal efficacy we chatted through before the break, uh, one of the biggest areas that we typically see those quick win issues are mainly where it's payer nuance where it's kind of misleading in terms of how they're responding to different items, right? Because if a payer is using a specific uh, reason code and remark code, and that is actually describing what they're looking for or how to fix it, then organizations typically have a handle on that. They know what to do, and they'll go in and do it. They either have the uh, you know follow-up teams to go in and do those appeals, or if it's high enough volume, they're looking at it, and they're making the build fix on their own. And so really where the largest issues that we see are within areas where it's misleading in terms of the actual cause. And that has been the biggest benefit of the machine learning where we can say, all right, even though we're getting this denial code that will typically point to a coding issue, it actually has nothing to do with that because these are the most significant features of the claim coming back as leading to this being denied. And so sometimes that takes conversations with the organization to say, you know, this is what the models are showing. Does this align with your understanding, or what's your context on, you know, why this would be significant? But as we've seen more and more cases where that machine learning is accurate, even if we see something that we wouldn't typically piece together as the cause of a denial, it gives us confidence that if the models are saying this is the issue, we've seen enough cases of this where we could be confident that this is likely the cause. Maybe, Maybe- think. Oh,
0: go ahead, Evan. No, no, no. You first. Heard-
1: I was just thinking like, if I'm a client and I'm I'm working with you all and you have this model, I almost want to be spoon fed results versus taking my own, my own pass at it. I'm curious, are the folks that you're working with like really interested in just having a model, tell them what's happening or do they want to take it a step further and work with the data on their own? We take the
2: initiative to provide the recommendation. We know how busy organizations are. And a lot of things kind of fall into the back burner because there's just so much to do and keeping up with the latest Epic functionality and making sure that you're keeping up with payer requirements. Organizations don't have time to dig into the data themselves. So that's where we take the approach of going as far as we can by getting the context of what they're doing today, getting the context of the issue, and then providing a discrete recommendation wherever possible to say, this is what needs done. Right, you could submit this as an SLG to your Epic TS, and then that is going to be, you know, addressing this given issue. So, as far as we can take those issues, we do because organizations typically don't want another dashboard to look at. They don't want another model that they have to have analysts go through and and determine what to do themselves.
0: Do you guys? How do you? How do you? You know, like beyond an SLG to to the Epic analyst, how are you guys partnering with other with other um, companies to say, like, let's say there isn't an IT component or resource to be able to do that build? Are you, are you taking your prior knowledge and expertise and jumping in and offering that service, or are you referring that that type of stuff out, like, to ex- expand your partnerships with others? Just kind of thinking through, like, you're probably finding a lot, but knowing that. IT resources are so limited with the number of upgrades and break-fix issues and putting patient care first versus denial management first, you know, those resources tend to not be there to be able to maybe take some of those recommendations that are could be quick wins, right?
2: Right. That's completely fair. And that's where we have, you know, relationships with the Wilshire Group, where maybe it takes a consultant for six months to help drive that project forward. Uh, That is something that we don't get into organization systems and fix it on our own because we don't have the background on all of their build, all of their context. We would want the input from someone at that organization or to have uh, an outside party come in who they're dedicated to that organization or that fix at any given time. And again, we're there to support with as much data and recommendations as we can, right? One of the things that helps a lot is being able to provide the discrete cases and examples where these things are happening, provide cases where their appeals are working. And so they're able to use that to facilitate the process and make that a little bit faster. But uh, we also keep an eye out for opportunities like RPA is another huge, huge opportunity in this space. And we don't do RPA ourselves, but we know a lot about it. We know where it can be leveraged. And that's uh, robotic process automation or bots, you have likely heard about. And that's where you have a very consistent manual task that needs done. And you uh, can have an RPA vendor make a bot to automate that process. So, whether that's dragging and dropping documentation from Epic into a validity or a payer portal to resolve a 252 denial, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. That also helps with, you know, okay, well, we don't have enough resources for this right now. That's fine if you could have a bot and you don't have to worry about your own staff having to go in and do those things.
0: Absolutely. It makes me think of like a client that I've been working with for a while now. They are trying to take five campuses that all run, well, five health systems that all run their own revenue cycles, but trying to leverage coming together to say like, hey, you know. This is what's denied. This is what what they're receiving as denial. But we are seeing success at one campus of like getting a lot of these overturned and moved forward. But the other four aren't receiving this. And, you know, I think based off what you guys have continuously shared with us, taking all of everybody's data and saying, wait, this organization's winning these through this, why aren't you and you guys are on the same contract component, being able to leverage and see that might be something that they could actually see through your system versus having to talk it out and say, are you having this problem? I'm having this problem. And then trying to reconcile that type of data to then go into the 835, 837 and say, what are those remittances? What did we send? What's the differences and changes? It, it sounds like You know, people could definitely leverage even to say, how do we come together and have you guys run that data to say, oh, this was a win, this wasn't that type of deal. So
2: Exactly. And especially even highlighting those potential gaps in contracting, where if our models say, you know, there's no difference between these claims or the way that you're billing these services out, but they're still getting paid from this one group and this other group then we could bring that to the organization and say, functionally, there's no difference in how you're billing these two apart from what service facility or billing provider, anything like that. Do you all have different contracts related to these services between these two groups? And that can often highlight those gaps where it's not how they're billing it. They don't need a change in their Epic functionality to address that issue. It's a matter of contracting and how they need to work with the payer to say, Hey, you're paying us whenever it's out of this group. You're not paying us out of that group. Let's get that aligned because I know that these services and the way that I'm billing it is actually correct.
1: I'm uh, I'm thinking selfishly here, just as uh, I'm working as a revenue integrity director and on the side, I have somebody messaging me about, about an edit and I'm thinking to myself like, man, there's so many edits that I work that I don't even know if they prevent a denial or like, is my team doing unnecessary work when we would get paid anyways? I don't know if a data model can find um, like work being done versus the denial prevention, or if it would like if if there's any value add, but I'm just thinking just like with all the data that's out there, it'd be really, really cool if you could analyze actual end user work and its impact on denials, denial prevention, or if it's not doing anything at all. not that that data, I don't know if that data is available or not. I'm thinking out loud just as we're talking through this and thinking about how do we prevent denials? And you were saying like, what's a first pass versus uh, something that's preventable? Um, I guess maybe to give you an actual question though, when you jumped into this space of working with denial prevention, has it has the outlook for denials improved in your mind? Or as you've gotten into the data and the details and working with clients, you're like, man, this is much more of a mess than I thought it, thought it was going to be. Like what is your change from like day one to now as far as like the outlook and opportunity?
2: That's a really good question. I I think the issue is that payers are always going to find a reason not to pay. You fix one issue, another one's going to come up. Uh, It's like whack-a-mole. It's there's always going to be something, right? Because if organizations started paying 100% of every claim, then, you know, that's billions, if not a trillion dollars. Uh, And so I think My initial understanding whenever I started was that there was obvious complexity, especially whenever you look at all of the different niche payer requirements. I mean, these online manuals can go hundreds of pages and outline all these different cases. So I think for situations like that, yeah, I was blown away as we've gone through some of these things, the levels of complexity and requirements, but that's also reinforced the issue and the need at organizations because they're likely not able to get through all you know thousand pages of all those requirements themselves. And if we can use the data in order to kind of figure out what those are, at least the most important and the largest, most impactful ones, uh, that is really what we've been able to see. And even with that complexity, it's at least uh, a little bit better
3: managed with better tools. Yeah, I think that's one of the more exciting aspects of the the work we do you know um we have tons of statistics and other models going into things and then you know these are all very complex issues but there's just kind of a a fun enjoyment from getting a really discreet output from your machine learning models to say like this is a a strange this is kind of a strange element like also was referencing earlier you know here's an element that might not necessarily make sense based on the denials that the payer is actually giving us, but this is truly the significant component of this. And just seeing that output come from our, our we call our system karma for claims or monitoring analytics, but her, when it comes, when that output comes out of her, then like just seeing it discreetly, it's this element right here, um, which we might not have, which someone probably wouldn't have gotten to, you know, just looking at it in a pivot table. That's a very cool feeling for us.
0: Have you guys started to see your clients take like the data now and start taking those to like denial prevention governance groups or what are they doing beyond uh, taking your recommendations right and how are they building kind of pd PS sorry pdca programs or prevention programs around what you around the outputs um because you know there's going to be a component of like you make the recommendation but there's also still usually an operational change that needs to take place whether it's from the clinicians or whether it's from the revenue cycle itself but how how are you starting to see your your clients leverage everything and actually start to engage others outside of revenue cycle yeah, i think curveball. we see a lot sorry. of that <laughs> what's that that it was a curveball sorry oh good Uh,
2: I think we see that mostly with the kind of overarching denial issues that almost every organization has, right? So if we're looking at registration denials, uh, authorizations, attachments, where you have all of these different parties in play, right? You have your front-end registrars, you have your HIM team with the documentation, and now you don't just have an Epic analyst going in and changing a setting in the CDF or updating a role, you've got multiple teams and a lot of people involved. That's, I think, where we see a little bit more of the delay or the, you know, the amount of time and effort taken is going to be greater in those cases. But it's also helped reprioritize those items because they know that authorizations are an issue or they know attachment denials are an issue. But by us being able to quantify that and be able to say, you know, if if this functionality is implemented, this is the expected change, the man hours that you will save, because we can track, you know, okay, what's getting appealed. And so even if we're just using assumptions on how many of these could be worked an hour, you get a sense of, you know, how much time savings for their uh, follow-up team. We get a sense of how much more in appeals you'd be able to work through. And so that's helped drive those conversations to make change a lot faster where it may have been on the back burner previously.
1: I'm thinking about um, just like a recent client I worked with and they had a deny, all their denials are outsourced. And I'm thinking about the conflict of interest of like, if you outsource your denials, they're not interested in preventing. They're just going to work because they want their volume. And like, if you prevent then their volume goes down. Do you, when when you're getting plugged into an organization and they're thinking about prevention of denials, um like where does that stand on their priority list as far like are they more interested in preventing or are they like really just focused on like give me data so I can like work these and get these like these fixed? I'm, I'm curious where you you sense prevention, like future denials um on a priority list for organizations that you're working with.
2: I think that's always the ideal. If you can prevent it and you can figure out how to prevent that, that's always going to be preferred over any amount of having to appeal. Not only in the sense that your team doesn't have to work them. If they come back denied, you get your revenue faster and it reduces noise, improves your metrics, everything like that. So I think it depends on really what can be prevented. Uh, Because something that we see all the time are these attachment denials from your typical commercial payers, and they're just on regular office visits. And you're not going to send medical records on every single 99214 that you bill out because that's just outrageous. And if only 3% of them are coming back with an attachment denial, that doesn't make sense to necessarily prevent that. But if you can automate the resolution of that front to back and then see payment without any manual intervention... It's not as good as preventing it ahead of time, but that's about as good as you can do whenever you don't know exactly when or why that denial is going to come back in. So if it's a discrete fix, that's ideal. If We know that it can be prevented. Great. But there's still so much value in these other cases in terms of focusing about uh, on when that comes back.
3: What are we doing? How can we do it better? Yeah. And I think there's also the component about um, stopping issues before they become you know, large items that you do see on like your slicer, dicer, for example, or that you do see huge denial issues on your dashboard, you know, Um, when we're working with these organizations and we take years of historic data and we're training our models specific to them and their, you know, facilities, um, we're also able to detect trends just much faster, you know? So not only are we going to show you everything that happened previously, but now if suddenly this payer for, you know, X procedure, whatever scenario you want, Like if they were previously only denying this 10% of the times and suddenly over the last month, we got a significant spike in that, that's allowing us to identify things far faster than until it becomes uh until it starts clogging your work queues also leads into those conversations with operations. Like we talked about earlier, you know, those are more discussion points to say what either changed in our build, um, what different, um, payer policies came out. Like let's make this a discussion to see how we want to prioritize this moving forward um, and let's, you know, keep playing the game of whack-a-mole. Like Austin said, let's stop this before it happens. And then when the next one comes up, we'll do the same thing.
0: So that that makes me think like, you know, with Epic's push for payer platforms and leveraging more and more, pay, trying to get more and more payers and health systems to adopt that licensure and, and do data exchange through payer platforms and eventually even claims exchange, right? Have uh, Have you had any clients that are doing uh, payer platforms today or are you in And how are you guys seeing an uptick or a downtick in denials? I mean, I'm guessing we're going to see a larger uptick with denials eventually, but kind of trying to understand that.
2: We've had a couple clients that were in the process of implementing or exploring it. I think payer platform sounds great, but I would need to see more of it before I'm sold. I think it's still very early on. I think it's going to streamline a lot of items like the authorization requests, attachment requests, where the payer is willing to pay. They just need some additional information. And so I think those cases are going to be great. Uh, But I guarantee there's still going to be other reasons that are not going to be able to be resolved through payer platform or payers are going to look to try to deny You know, not just because they they truly are willing to pay and they just need some extra information, but because they're just trying to kind of create some noise and mess to save money. Uh, So I think there's a lot of potential with payer platform, but it's still really early on. And I'd be surprised if there is total adoption of that across all insurance companies. And, you know, I don't think it's going to drive the denial rates down to zero.
0: Yeah, I get worried with payer platforms of just what are they actually accessing beyond what? what the intent of it is. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's kind
3: of funny for we talked about earlier about wariness in the industry of different tech solutions. And then we, we feel the same way sometimes, you know, us as tech vendors, we see other organizations come out and say, here's what we're going to do. And we're like, wow, that sounds like a lot. Is that going to, is that actually going to happen? So it's just, yeah, it's kind of funny to be on the flip side of that too sometimes.
0: All right. Well, before we go to another break um, in uh, wrapping up this segment, what's one thing that you guys could recommend to um potential clients or even, uh, you know, just listeners out there that they should start to dive in and, and think about as they're looking at for denial prevention?
2: This is another good question. I think if there's one thing, it's probably to really try to quantify your issues Beyond just what you're seeing in dashboards or a denial report that shows you, you know, total volume by CARC or dollar amounts, I think it's really digging into what would the impact of this optimization be, in the sense that you know you're gonna have a dozen different optimizations on the back burner and you can really only take on you know a few at a time, and so the prioritization of that uh, by digging into the data that you do have available. I think that's probably the biggest piece. You're never going to address everything, but you need to make sure the priorities are, are correct.
3: Yep, yeah, I, I I feel the same way. I think along the lines of efficiency as well, Austin, that's always where my mind goes any, anywhere that I'm working is like, what effort are we... People are always stretched on man hours. So with those man hours we are using, what's the actual output of it? Like, are people in work queues because they need to get 10 done a day? But then like, what 10 are we actually getting done? You know, what are the small wins for work your organization or scoring that we can input to make sure that our hard hours we're putting in are are producing good output for us. Yeah. All
0: right. All right. Well, let's take a break and we'll be right back. Are
5: you ready to unlock the full potential of your medical coding team? Look no further than Adeo Technologies, the leading provider of medical coding productivity solutions. With Adeo's Gemini Solution Suite, medical coders are empowered and complemented with cutting edge tools and technologies. The Gemini Coder platform, Gemini AutoCode, and Gemini Coding Assist solutions work seamlessly together, creating efficiency and improving accuracy in medical coding. Say goodbye to tedious manual processes, cheat sheets, and memorization, and embrace the power of workflow improvements, artificial intelligence, and predictive coding. At Adeo, we believe in the collaboration between medical coders and artificial intelligence to create coding capacity That makes human coders more valuable to their healthcare organizations. Visit our website at www.adeo-tech.com. It's adeo techcom to learn why we love coders and how Adeo Technologies is transforming medical coding productivity one claim at a time.
3: Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue.
1: And we're back. All right. So we're going to wrap up today with the Wilshire Lab. And we're coming back from the holiday break. And we want to have our listeners get a little bit of insight on what it means to be in healthcare or healthcare IT. And maybe just to start us out, Spencer, will give you the first question on what drove you to work in the healthcare IT space? Was this on your radar or something you were interested in? Or, or like, I know everybody at Epic has like, it seemingly like a crazy story of how they got here. Curious what yours is.
3: Yeah, I think it is a crazy story. So, I mean, I grew up in Virginia. Uh, I was supposed to work for Geico in the claims department for their uh, office in Fredericksburg. And I got an email from Epic and I responded and I said, "Are is this a spam email or are you a real company? Um, and the lady assured me that it was a real email. Um, so when I got there and I went through the interview process, ended up loving it. Um, and they put me on the claims team, which I don't know if that was because I was in the claims automated stuff for Geico. I was like, maybe they thought it was the same thing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was never an area that I grew up thinking I was gonna move to Wisconsin and just make this my area of expertise. But you know, you work at Epic for a few years, you get a lot of really niche specific knowledge and you pick up the 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 tech that like Austin described to be able to find you to be able to see areas that can be improved. You know, I think it's a always a good sign of you know your mastery or your comfortability in an area is being able to see where you can improve things. So uh yeah never never pictured it growing up, but I'm happy to be here now. And I, I'm looking forward to both the work we're going to continue to do. Um, and just seeing if we can make any, like, you know, as a lofty goal, I always think of, can we make like lasting impact in the area of, you know, the healthcare billing field, you know, what What about you, Austin?
2: (laughs) Yeah, very, uh, very similar. I had no intention of, uh, going into healthcare prior to that Epic email. Uh, I was studying to be an actuary, and I you know, always loved data analytics, uh, math. And I figured if they're going to pay me to take math tests, then being an actuary sounds great. But as I was getting uh, completing my degree, I realized that I didn't really want to, you know, be locked away calculating insurance premiums all day. I wanted to do something with a little bit more engagement and exposure. And then I got the uh, Epic email, sounded like a very interesting opportunity where you get exposed to a, a lot of different elements. You have the project management, but you also have the technical, you get to dig into software. And that was really where my interest was being directed toward. And then getting to Epic and seeing how crazy of an industry healthcare is, all these issues plaguing it, the competition, the fight between payers and organizations and all the nuance of it i just i fell in love with the industry uh, and so i'm I'm happy to still still be here and I'm glad that uh that I found it
0: well, taking a little bit of a different spin on the question um we have been asking all of our um Participants on the podcast or guests to give one piece of advice to somebody who maybe starting their career or restarting their career and and kind of made a career leap. What's what's one thing that you guys would recommend uh, to somebody jumping into the healthcare IT space?
2: I think don't be afraid to take a risk, especially if you're early in your career, because you have so much potential. It's just going to become increasingly more difficult to take that leap and make. A risky decision, the later you are uh, on in life. If you have a family, if you have kids, if you have a mortgage, at that point, your risk tolerance is likely a lot lower. And so the thing that kind of let me take the leap to step away from Epic and, you know, start a company and get rid of a you know decent paycheck is I just kind of look at the worst case scenario. And if you get really comfortable with that uh, as that being a, an actual potential, then it lets you take the risk and really be able to sit down and focus to work on the bright side, to work toward that optimistic outlook of what, well, what can I do? And the fact that you don't have to ask what if anymore, because you took the leap. I think that was the biggest driver for me. So I think being willing to take a risk is my biggest piece of advice. Do it while you can.
3: Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of times it's easy to get stuck with a, um like a decision paralysis, you know, whether it is going into healthcare IT specifically or any other field, it's like, there's so much information available at our fingertips all the time. And it's really easy to say, I need to research everything A to Z to 100% before I even start doing this. But, and that's a, a great idea, but a lot of times that just stops you from ever taking that first step because you feel like you're not ready, Um, as opposed to get your baseline, make your foundation, start doing something and then let the problems come up. And that's how you learn along the way when you actually understand what you're doing in the first place. Um, So yeah, I agree with, I agree with Austin. You just got to start doing it and let yourself learn along the way. Cool.
1: Well, thanks for joining today. Appreciate uh, the insight on startups and data and talking about denials. I know my day is spent just going through denial data. So maybe I I should uh, (laughs) try to push for a little bit better solution that I, I can work with. But um maybe a conversation for another day but for folks who want to reach out to you and uh want to connect whether it be just for a question or maybe uh some sort of engagement what's the best way to connect with
3: you uh yeah we have our um claim capital linkedin page of course i'd still check that every day um we have our claim dash capital website as well Uh, if you just google claim capital be the first thing that shows up for you Um, you know I'm always happy getting an individual email as well so you know you guys are welcome to include my personal in any kind of uh,
0: podcast notes or
3: anything and would be happy to hear from anybody awesome
0: well I think that's it for us today um this is season three episode one name to be determined (laughs) but thanks everybody for listening that's it Bye bye if you like today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG, Wilshire Group at TWG Health, on Facebook at the Wilshire Group, or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch,
5: come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel.
0: If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate,
5: and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust, results you can count on.